The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. The biggest challenge right now, we're a small company and we need to become a big company. And that involves going out, raising money and building incredible indoor farms, building that national footprint, converting our old school business that we've been in for many years into this new school business that uses indoor farms and better product and cheaper, frankly, all at once. That's an incredible journey, but there's a lot of work to do to scale it. And that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 4, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, welcome new listeners. If you're looking for a show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Harry Duran. And really excited to share this week's episode. But before I do that, in case you missed last week, I spoke to Aja Atwood. She's the co-founder and CEO at Trella Technologies. It's an organization that provides technical, innovative solutions to make indoor and urban farming a sustainable, long-lasting industry. What was most fascinating was the patented technologies that Aja and her team developed, including automated plant training robotics. She also shares some of the work they're doing with the John Charles Academy. And we speak a little bit about the importance of fostering diversity in the workplace. Make sure you check that out. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking to Matt Ryan. He's the CEO of Soli Organic, formerly known as Shenandoah Growers. Soli Organic grows exceptional organic produce at an affordable price nationwide. And in this conversation, we dive into Matt's incredible business background from working at Disney and Starbucks to eventually pursuing the opportunity that presented itself at Soli. Matt talks about the high growth in indoor ag and what Solely Organic is doing to differentiate themselves in this market and the importance of fulfilling the vision of a brand. Really inspiring conversation with someone who's super knowledgeable. This episode is brought to you by Freight Farms. Freight Farms manufactures and sells the leading vertical hydroponic container farm, the Greenery S. 
Built inside a 40-foot shipping container, the Greenery S uses innovative climate control technology paired with an IoT app called Farmhand to enable anyone to grow fresh food anywhere in the world. Visit FreightFarms.com forward slash Vertical Farming Podcast to learn more. And one quick reminder, we do have sponsorship slots open for a couple of episodes being produced this month at a discounted rate if you're interested. And obviously, Season 5 is opening up and we're having conversations with sponsors there already as well. Harry at VerticalFarmingPodcast.com if you're interested in learning more. I do want to take a moment to read off some of the reviews that have been coming in over the past couple of months. And I will apologize ahead of time because it seems that there was a whole slew of these that I missed. And so I want to really thank folks that have written in reviews and I value each and every single one of them. And one of the things I say at the end of each podcast is that I'm going to be reading these out on future episodes. And uh, (laughs) I'm a little lax there and have been. So I do want to get caught up. And so if you'll grant me that time now, I want to get caught up because I really value the feedback. And it means a lot. You know, it's a labor of love that goes into getting these episodes out and doing the interviews. And when people are getting value out of it, and they're sharing that with me, I'm truly honored. So Back in March, P. Bear said, original is smart. This was needed. Thanks, Harry Duran. I never miss it. Back in April, HS Snowman. I love the show. When's the next episode? It's been two weeks. Obviously, keeping me honest there. Thank you. Uh, Cam B88, quality work, a very interesting podcast, quality interviews, and uh, understandable also for people like me with limited background knowledge about vertical farming. Thomas Oberlin, past guest. Thank you, Thomas. Says, single best source of a vertical farm founder knowledge. Wow. Thank you. Tejas2991, we chatted on LinkedIn back in July, says, informative sessions to gain holistic understanding of the field. Every new topic I would get interested in, I end up looking for a podcast on it. I entered the words vertical farming on Apple Podcast, and this one showed up first. The album art was so attractive, I opened the channel and read the description, gave the first three episodes a listen, and quite liked the conversations Harry was having with his guests. I'm looking to invest in this industry, and I believe this podcast might be the right platform to seek holistic understanding of the industry of vertical farming. Thank you so much, Tejas. Very kind words. Shad84, excellent show, insightful. I was shocked to see so few reviews. This is gold. Thank you, Harry, for an incredible series about vertical farming. I've been thoroughly enjoying your work. Mr. Monk 21 empowered me to launch my own. Harry has done an amazing job at getting so many variants of guests from different aspects of vertical farming since listening to this back in March and leaving my job. I'm in the process of launching my own urban farm in the UK using hydroponics. That's awesome and inspiring. <laughs> Brett, leave it. Fascinating topic, insightful conversations. I've loved learning about this space and this podcast is very informative. And lastly, Emily Seward. Thank you so much, Emily. Fantastic podcast. I've really enjoyed these informative but accessible conversations with leaders in the sector. The host seems to have a knack for drawing out lots of interesting information in a very conversational and easy to follow way. I would recommend this podcast to anyone interested in vertical farming. I have to take a moment to really let those sink in. Really, the only thing I can say is that I'm just truly grateful for the listeners and for taking the time to leave that feedback. So as you can hear, I'll be reading these out on future episodes ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Been keeping you waiting long enough. Let's get into this conversation with Matt. So Matt Ryan, CEO of Solely Organic, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Have you used this tool before, Squadcast, for recording? First time. First time. <laughs> What's been your experience 
in this world of online recording with, with everyone forced to look to use a Zoom, your experience uh, having to learn on the fly, as you will, all these tools? It's funny because I've always been a little bit adept at technology, so that part doesn't scare me. But there are techniques you have to learn through all of this. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I've gotten better at the virtual thing. <laughs> yeah. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, what was that experience of going through the pandemic for you? And obviously, there's a lot of different ways you could jumping off points, but just maybe a quick synopsis of your takeaway. Now that we have a little bit of room to look back, what were you experiencing as a, as a business leader um, th- through, the, through those you know, 12 to 16 months? Well, I was very lucky in that I got to choose the next chapter of my life during this period of time. You know, I had uh, decided uh, to make the move away from Starbucks literally at the beginning of the pandemic. It was the day that the first case of COVID in Seattle came out that I decided that it was time for me to look for my next chapter, did a wind down across a year with Starbucks, and then spent some time looking for what the next opportunity would look like. And I had time to reflect and through the process, realized that I wanted to do something that was meaningful and impactful. I wanted to lead, and the opportunity at Soli Organic, then Shenandoah Growers, came up, and I said, wow, I've been following the opportunity, I've been following the sector, and I started to learn about the company and said, this is the kind of place where I could make a difference or I could help make a difference for the company, and uh, I had the great luxury of, of being able to make the switch right during the course of the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm wondering if you heard from a lot of your colleagues in the space about some of the challenges they faced. I was out of corporate at that time as well. I've been, I've had my own business since 2015. So been remote and so had familiarity with the tools, but I can only think about have this dynamic of having a workforce in person. And then just like that, it's switched over within the span of a couple of days and you're forced to adapt. Well, I was there at the beginning, of course, at Starbucks and it was a, you know, Starbucks was a company that very much. I mean, it's an in-person company. The stores are in-person, the offices were in-person, and it was culture shock to have to go virtual. Now, the good news is a company like Starbucks had, a, you know, from a customer point of view, built a lot of tool, put a lot of tools in place, digital ordering and all that kind of stuff. Thank goodness for Starbucks that was all there. But it was a transition. And I know from my old colleagues at Disney as well, too, with so many of their businesses being dependent upon in-person experiences, think theme parks or movie theaters, just immense disruption to the business and uh, immense disruption to ways of work. So uh, quite a ride for anybody who was with those companies. I know that. Yeah. So uh, you did mention Disney, and I, I did want to talk a little bit about that experience. Can you talk about, and there's significant milestones, obviously, in your career with Disney and with Starbucks and now with Soli, but just so people get a little bit of the, the context, how did that opportunity present itself to work at Disney? And what was your experience working there like? Yeah, so I've been prior to Disney many years in the advertising business of all things, and I, I knew that that was not the best industry to be in in the late 90s as everything digital was coming along and disrupting television. And I uh, got this wonderful opportunity to join Disney because uh, that industry, the entertainment industry, was in great transition. Used to be a industry where the distribution was incredibly constrained. There were, you know, three or four TV networks, a handful of cable networks and movie theaters, and there was not the endless shelf of entertainment. And what the endless shelf of entertainment that we now see in the digital world meant was that no longer was the studio in charge, it was the consumer that was in charge. And things like brands 
And knowing the customer and knowing what the customer wanted started to matter. And I think they hired me for that reason, because that's what I ultimately am as a consumerist. And I was there through a great period of change when the Walt Disney Company went from being you know, a company that was in control of what people wanted to having to be a company that listened to what people wanted. The customer was king. The consumer was king. And that's very much been the, the motif of my career. And I, I think it's going to happen again in the produce business. Yeah, I'm interesting. I'm interested to learn how some of those analogies might fit. I, I read in one of the descriptions that at Walt Disney, you were responsible, as you mentioned, for long-term strategic planning. And then this other uh, thing that caught my eye was that you oversaw the development of the character franchises as well. And I'm wondering uh, what skill sets or mental models are in play <laughs> as you have to think of the, the challenges with those tasks? Well, you know, going back to the, that era, I mean, in many ways, Disney had grown up as a conglomerate with different parts of the organization acting autonomously. It was a very effective model for growth for a long time. But the truth was there were all sorts of shared bits of intellectual property across the company. Everybody had Mickey Mouse in their hands. Everybody had the princesses in their hands. And at a certain point in time, it became evident that with the with the consumer able to cross every angle and every different piece of Disney business, that they needed to have sort of a centralized voice in the planning of those customer franchises, planning from a business point of view so that there was a timing across the entire country company that in terms of how things worked, but also a planning in terms of what the what the storytelling would look like, what the consumer proposition would be like. And, you know, you didn't always want to step on top of everything. So having a very, very clear plan for all the character franchises was part of what I did at, at Disney. And it certainly worked out for that company. It's going strong as we speak. <laughs> it must put a smile on your face when you see what they've been able to do with the Marvel franchise, because that's essentially to what you're speaking about. Yeah, it's exactly. I was very involved. I, I was uh, part of the team that did the acquisition of Marvel back then, and I saw the potential, and it's just wonderful to see it all come to life, even if I've left the company at this point in time. I'm still quite a fan. <laughs> uh, do you have children? I do not have children. The whole world are my children, actually. So uh, <laughs> I do have children. They, they're just not biological. <laughs> well, I imagine any of the uh, the children in the family, nephews, nieces, maybe like, uh, you sure get some brownie points, I would imagine, <laughs> when folks know you work at Disney and Marvel. Well, especially when I was able to bring people into the theme parks. Uh, there was a real, I was the most popular uncle in town, I can tell you that. <laughs> so I'm interested from a career standpoint, where are you and what are you? what's in your mind as you are wrapping up at Disney and then the opportunity to work with uh, an organization like Starbucks in a different industry, but related also uh, when it comes to client experience, like how you think about that process and what made you make that jump? Well, you know, I was not interested in leaving Disney. It was my dream job on so many levels. And uh, a very remarkable opportunity came along where I was essentially invited to start the strategy department at Starbucks. And as, uh, you know, a, somebody who never thought that they'd have the opportunity to do something like that at such a major brand, I thought to myself, this is an opportunity I just can't pass up. And now, rip my heart out to leave Disney, but on the other hand, I knew I was going to another great company with a great brand. And from my perspective, the industry was completely different going from media and entertainment to going to coffee and retail. However, people, customers are customers. And understanding customers and understanding how you translate what customers want into operational business practices and to communications and marketing and product, I've 
that's the thing that I can do. That's whatever, you know, whatever was in my background that gave me that ability is I have that ability. And uh, the, the skill sets transferred. And I very much went from being a person who was focused on the movies to being a purpose person who was focused on coffee and breakfast items and what have you. And a lot of the skill sets were very transferable. At the same time, I like the challenge about learning a new industry. Not all industries are alike. The dynamics are very different. And when I joined Starbucks, you know, I, you know, I found myself thinking, oh, this must be a very simple business. Well, there's no such thing as a simple business, I learned. And certainly that's true. It's solely organic as well, too. There's complexity everywhere. And understanding the nuances of the business is really, really important. But if you don't understand what the consumer and what the customer want, you'll never get anywhere. And it's that basic understanding and of needs and and how you serve them that is the common thread across all everything that I've done. Uh, two of the things that are uh, two examples that come to mind, this idea of you being a consumerist and this being sort of in your background and this is what you've done. Is this something that uh, either in college or coming out of college or, or even prior to entering college is something that was the way you thought or how you viewed the world or, or when you look at products, like there's people that just have an appreciation for how things are made, how things are done and, and like the end user experience. And I'm wondering where that comes from. I wish I could tell you there was a grand plan and I, I, I'm afraid there's not. I was a, a combination of a science geek. I studied a lot of biochemistry, got accepted into medical school. I was very much interested in the world of science and good at math and all that kind of thing. At the same time, I ended up taking my major in history and literature, combining the left brain and the right brain. And uh, I got out of college not knowing what the heck to do with that because it was a strange mix of biochemistry and literature that wasn't really a career pathway. But what I did have is the ability to be both analytic and quantitative and really smart about those kinds of things, as well as an understanding of the softer side as well, too. And recognizing at the same time that those were not disconnected. They're, they're, they're things that are very, very integrated in, in those points of connection between the softer side and the harder business side really is what being a consumer marketer is all about. And I found myself able to do the analytics piece with ease. And that differentiated me early days from a lot of people who got into marketing who thought that marketing was just pretty pictures. And then uh, from the the pretty pictures crowd, from the the hard analytics crowd, I had the understanding of all the softer side things and knew how to quantify them. So as you started to make that bridge across everything, it was a powerful combination of skills. Nothing to do with biochemistry or literature, by the way, but <laughs> yeah. it was what was in my brain that worked out. So I'm very fortunate to have had the trajectory I've had and opportunities that came my way. But I also knew as soon as I started doing way back when advertising that I, I felt like I understood markets. And I think understanding markets is what business is all about. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask as a history and literature major, if you have a book recommendation <laughs> for folks who, 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 I know there's many to choose from a recent one. Lots and lots to choose from. I, I will tell you that I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Virginia Woolf and I'm still a fan. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we'll have a Virginia Woolf book in the show notes. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll pick one. I'm curious, Matt, working at a, at a place like Walt Disney and at Starbucks, you can tie those to an iconic leader and founder, right, of those organizations, you know, obviously Walt Disney, Howard Schultz. I'm wondering, as you think about stepping into this role at Soli, what role that plays in how 
folks or how that trickles down into the day-to-days, uh, you know, thinking of fulfilling like a mission of someone who had a, a big picture of what, what they wanted their company to look like? Well, you know, there are lots of brands that have famous founders and there are lots of brands that don't. And I think it's much more about the brand and the idea than it is about the individual involved. I mean, sometimes they put their name on the door as Walt Disney did himself and they loom larger than life. And that's wonderful on one level. But at a certain point in time, it almost doesn't matter. It's about the power of the idea. And at this point in time, Disney is a really powerful idea about, you know, entertainment that has values and heart and, uh, you know, quality and lots of things that the rest of Hollywood doesn't provide. And Starbucks is really about that sort of special everyday experience and that customization that you can get for $5 that you can't get anyplace else. And yes, the founders were immensely responsible for that vision in the in the early days, but the the companies transcend their founders and they become their own thing and they become their own ideas. And that's happened over and over again in the history of the world. It's a sign of success, by the way. But you don't necessarily need a name brand founder to get there. And you can come up with lists and lists of companies that have done that. And I think ultimately, Soli might be one of those uh, players too. <laughs> Yeah, we're looking forward to learning more. Just a last question on Starbucks. Did your coffee habits change dramatically (laughs) during your time there? I'm afraid that I'm one of those people that drinks 10 cups of coffee a day now, and that hasn't let up. And, uh, you know, some people can and some people can't. I can and I love it still. (laughs) Yeah. I was just thinking about today, just routines and rituals, you know, because we have a French press and I have whole beans. So it's a ritual, like grind enough for my cup keep the water up. I've got my French press. I do my, I, I got my stirring and, you know, I guess similar to Japanese ceremonies. It's it's really interesting how over the span of a lifetime, how things like rituals can help ground us in, as we start our day. Absolutely. And there's something about that coffee experience that is absolutely magical. And that, that was something that predated my joining Starbucks as well, too. And it probably motivated me because I was quite a fan and I enjoyed my my morning coffee from the get-go. And I actually learned an enormous amount, as you would, about coffee while I, while I was at Starbucks and how it's grown and the processes involved in, in you know going from bean to cup. It's not as simple as you think. And there's something wonderful about it. And I am a fan of many different kinds of coffee. I don't like the big sugary gloppy stuff so much, you know, but you know, there are people who do the, the stuff that I tend to like tends to be the pure, great coffee. And I have my favorites. Yeah. They did an experiment. I, I grew up in New York one time and there's Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks. So for a week, they took regular Starbucks customers and they sent them to Dunkin' Donuts. And then the regular Dunkin' Donuts folks, they sent them to Starbucks for a week. So you can imagine just like you know, asking for an, a small, and they're like, oh, do you mean venti or grande? <laughs> and the strength of the coffee, it, it, I thought it was fun to read that. Well, it's interesting because the profile of the customers and the profile of the taste preferences of different kinds of, of coffee drinkers are just enormous, enormous differences between those brands. And, you know, we had, you know, you know, I have my biases having worked at Starbucks, but, you know, we knew that once people started to you know, acclimate to Starbucks and what they consider to be stronger coffee taste, which really meant oftentimes darker roast. Once you go there, you can't go back. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Okay, so getting closer to current time, when did this idea of vertical farming, controlled environment agriculture, when did it start to come on your radar? It actually started coming on my radar about maybe a year before I left Starbucks because I knew some people who got into the business. And I was curious about it because, you know, I 
And my grandfather was a farmer way back when, before there was even commercialized farms. And I've always been a bit of a gardener and paid attention to land. And, you know, I, you know, spend a lot of time in wine country. And, uh, you know, I've always been a somebody who cared about where things come from. And I was curious because, you know, I, I could see the stresses on agriculture living in California for so long. You can see the terrible problems with drought. And you know that things need to get done differently in this era of the big, you know, commercial farm that has, you know, industrial pesticides and industrial fertilizer and monoculture and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it wasn't sustainable, but like, how do you solve that problem? And, you know, I started to pay attention over time to indoor farming. And my big question was, how can you possibly make money at this game? Because in order for something to work, you have to be able to make money at it at the same time, too. And I just sort of said, well, yeah, they're raising a lot of money right now in this business, but I don't really know what the pathway forward is. And, you know, when I finally did get an opportunity to take a really hard look at Shenandoah Growers at the time, now Silly Organic, I started to realize, hey, there is a way here. And it's really interesting because if you can figure out how to make money at indoor farming and deliver the better product with all the benefits, the ESG benefits that go with it, wow, um, this is the future. And that's when I started to get excited. But that's a more recent development. That's across the last seven or eight months when I started uh, considering the opportunity at Soli that I, I uh, came to understand what that looked like. Tell the story of that meeting. It may not be one meeting, it may be several, but those initial meetings and discussions with, with uh, the founders of Shenandoah, now Soli, and how you're thinking about the opportunity to work with the team, or what was it about the team in those conversations that drew you t to them specifically? Well, it started with, you know, obviously there's a recruiting process, but, you know, board members and their sort of broad view of the world and how they looked at solely within it. That was the first step. And that was the thesis, if you will, the investment thesis. And, you know, that started to make a lot of sense. And I said, well, gee, if these incredible people, I mean, really, truly top rate investors see this opportunity, I need to take a harder look. And I remember the first time that I made the trip to the Shenandoah Valley back in, it was, you know, right around the end of May. And I, in a very humble place in many ways, in humble offices. I mean, it's not a fancy show place by any stretch. People come to our offices and they're like, oh my God, you actually work here? <laughs> and, and it shows you that we don't, we don't put our money into the offices. We put our money into farms, uh, which is the right thing to do, by the way. And um, I thought, well, God, you know, who are these people who work here? And I started to get to know them. I got to know Tim Hayden, the original founder, as well as Phil Karp, who's still with us, co-founder and president. And I started to understand what was in their head. And I understood the bravery that they they did to essentially make investments very, very early on in CEA, controlled environment agriculture, long before it became as fashionable as it is today. And that was a real advantage because they were not in the limelight when they were doing it. They were scrapping every dollar they could to put, you know, into the invest on the investment side to figure out how to do things better because they realized the problems of field grown and the challenges associated with field grown. And they also saw that there was a pathway towards organic indoors, number one, and towards better costs, number two. And those are really the two big theses that I could take a lot of credit for, but it really belongs to the founder team who said, this is how it can be done in the future. And it took years of working through the technology and working through the systems to get the proof of concept to a place where it's like, yes, 
this is scalable. This is something that can work at a larger level. And it was exciting when I talked to them. I remember sitting in the dinner meeting in this restaurant and hearing about how they came, you know, it's the origin story of the company and how they had come to put this emphasis on this new way of doing things and how they've done it quietly as well, too, which is truly amazing. Unlike the rest of the world that had been out there showboating, this is a company that hadn't been showboating. This is a company that had been walking the walk before they started to talk the talk. And to me, that's the kind of that's the kind of company I really admire. And I said to myself, I want this job. And sure enough, I got it, probably because I wanted it in part. And it was a it was an amazing moment because I understood what the opportunity looked like at that point in time. And then of course I could bring all the things that I understand from the world of marketing and consumers and strategy and so on to bear. This is something that has real possibility. That's exciting to hear. I'm curious about your mindset at the time. So you were, this is your first role as CEO, correct? That's right. Yes. And, and so is it just as you start having these responsibilities in these other companies, I, I think you did allude to it a little bit earlier, but you felt like now was the time when you were ready given your career that to take on the responsibilities of, of running a, a company right on your own as CEO? Yeah. yeah. I have had amazing front row seats and gotten to know some of the, the most incredible CEOs. I mean, obviously I worked directly for Howard Schultz at Starbucks. There were great leaders at Disney, especially Bob Iger. And I had all sorts of exposure to the way that he led that company and was part of his circle and could understand what he did and, and you know how he took a company that was a little fragile when he took over and brought it to the amazing place that he did along with a lot of other people and, and you know he was humble and, and leveraged people along the way. And I learned so much about that. Also sitting on the board of, still do on the board of Kaiser Permanente with outstanding, outstanding leadership there. So I know what good, good looks like. And I said, you know, if I can have an opportunity, maybe on a much smaller scale, I might add, to do that myself, I would love that opportunity. And uh, I would love that opportunity to lead and be responsible. And, um, you know, one of the, I think, misgivings about CEOs is that they are, you know, they're in charge. Well, truthfully, you're working for everybody else. You're working for all your stakeholders, all your investors. And importantly, you're working for everybody who works for you because, you know, literally their livelihoods and their careers and, and everything about what they do is in your hands and one mistake. And it's a big problem for somebody else, not just you. And that's not a responsibility that's taken lightly. And I love having that responsibility. I, you know, I was, when I was 12, I was 50. So I'm going to stay 50 <laughs> for the rest of my life, by the way. Also, <laughs> how do you think about those, you know, first, I think about first 90 days, again, just in that corporate mindset. But, you know, when you step into this role, you know, wh where does your focus, where does your attention go? Like what I always think about, like, a new president moving into the White House, right? <laughs> like, there's a lot of stuff to to get on board with, and it's drinking from a fire hose. But what are those early days for you like? Well, a lot of hard work goes without saying. That's that's what you get paid for. But beyond that, it's learning, and you try to keep your mouth shut as much as you reasonably can during the first uh, time that you're working there, because you have a lot to learn, and the things that come out of your mouth during the very beginning may not be the right things. So then what ends up happening is you start to really understand the business. And, you know, I, you know, I think at this point in time, I, I'm there. 
And you also, at the same time, have this wonderful opportunity as an outsider who's come into the business to have outside perspective on it as well, too. So I'm starting to feel like I'm in that sweet spot where I have all of the perspective of somebody who's joined from the outside, who sees the opportunities, who sees the challenges, who knows the world from a different angle, plus real understanding of what the business is like and how it operates and how the technology and the science work and the people at the company and everything else. So that was a, there's an adjustment period. At the same time, you start to learn all sorts of things that you weren't expecting to learn and that you have to learn along the way. Things that, you know, as the head strategist or the head marketer or the head CRM person at different companies, you don't pay attention to. And there are new disciplines that I'm having to learn. And that's great. I enjoy learning. And it's part of what you always have to do, no matter what job you have in life. So just more of the same on, on that level. What's a, a pleasant surprise that you weren't aware of? Well, you know, the thing that you start to look at is, okay, well, this is great science and makes a lot of sense from a scientific perspective. But behind great science is great scientists. And the caliber of the thinking and the, and the critical skill sets that exist at Soli, the people who are literally making the process of growing better and better by relentlessly focusing on quality, relentlessly focusing on cost, I've come to admire how they how they get there and how they how they do their jobs and and the sort of open mindedness and what I've realized that you know coming from what's traditionally called a creative business like Disney, the creative people and scientists are very very similar in temperament. They just have a different sort of set of surf, surface skills. So they're all creative people. It's just how they express and develop their creativity. Sometimes it's with science and sometimes it's with you know the arts, but very, very similar. So I'm curious, and this is some of the things and challenges I run into when I start telling people that I host a, a podcast about vertical farming, and I'm sure you've the, the it's grown exponentially, the number of people who've asked you about the industry, <laughs> what it is you do, and, and what is vertical farming. So maybe st- starting at that 20,000-foot level, you know, when you explain the industry and what it is, how do you explain that? Let's say, let's use the example of your gr- explaining it to your grandmother or your parents. But then one level below that is how do you explain what solely does as a differentiator than what other companies in the space might be doing. Yeah. So starting with the the bigger picture of like what is indoor agriculture, what is controlled environment agriculture, I basically say there's there's been really one big revolution in agriculture. And that took place in the 20th century with the advent of you know commercial inorganic fertilizers where you have the Haber-Bosch process basically takes nitrogen out of the air with a lot of electricity and energy uses and creates this incredible thing that's fed the planet. That alongside of pesticides, monoculture, mechanization, all that kind of thing, that was a revolution in agriculture. And that's gotten us to where we are today. And now it's causing all these sustainability issues that we see out there. And there's a new way that's going to come along where we can be much smarter about the resources we apply and be more efficient and technical to grow stuff better and cheaper than how traditional agriculture does. And that's what this is really all about. And the means to do it is in these protected environments where you can actually control the inputs of plants. So I said, great, that is an absolutely terrific way of explaining what things are like. Well, how are you different from everybody else? 
And the way I see it is that we really have spent a long time as old-time growers as a company, understanding that growing plants is not just a simple scientific process. It's incredibly complex, and there's so much to be learned from years and years of agriculture, and especially going back but to before the era of you know, inorganic fertilizers and pesticides and everything else. How did things grow in the first place? And you know, at the end of the day, it's a matter of you know the light that plants absorb. It's the microclimates around plants, the airflow and the humidity. It especially is the soil that they grow in. And the fertilization process and the nutrients that are provided and the irrigation and so on. And you start looking at all those inputs. And I say, well, you know what Soli does that the other companies don't always do is we look at all of it together. And we're not doing this as a great big science experiment. We're just trying to figure out how to bring the best of nature indoors. And critically, what we're focused on is organically. We don't want to do anything that's not organic because organic is better. It's better for you health-wise, and it also tastes better. And everybody else in the indoor farming space, the vertical farms, doesn't do what we're doing. We're organic. And that is a result of the science and the special sauce that only Soli has. But it attracted me to the company because we can actually do that. We can grow organically indoors for about the same price that people are growing inorganic stuff outdoors. I said, wow, this is the basis of an incredible, incredible customer proposition because many, many poor people would buy organic if it didn't cost so much. That's true. And we are laser focused on delivering. It's almost like CEA is not the end in itself. It's the means to an end. We want to grow organic at the same price that inorganic is grown by everybody else. And we don't care where it's grown. We want organic grown at that same price. And the way we do it is through CEA. That's what Sully is all about. Yeah, that's great. That's a great encapsulation. <laughs> and that'll be helpful, especially that historical context of where we've come from. Because I think uh, people don't don't see the bigger picture and, and see how sometimes you need to go through the the stuff that gets us there fast. If you think about the railroad magnets and <laughs> all those stories of Carnegie, it was it was necessary at the time. But to your point, as we evolve and prioritize different aspects of that supply chain, I think it's important to really, you know, have that seven generations look, you know, look forward, look back, you know, in terms of impact that we're having on this planet as well. It's a breakthrough moment, and you know, there's a lot that we have to do to scale. I mean, that's the biggest challenge right now. We're a small company. And we need to become a big company. And that involves going out and raising money and building incredible indoor farms, building that national footprint, converting our old school business that we've been in for many years into this new school business that uses indoor farms and is better product and cheaper, frankly, all at once. That's an incredible journey, but there's a lot of work to do to scale it. And that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about. It's it's probably self-explanatory at this point, but the reason for the name change, because it says it all, solely organic, obviously. And so how, I don't know, were you involved in that as well? Were you on board when, when that decision was made? Oh, you betcha. <laughs> so I was very much part of that. We have this amazing differentiation around organic and the name wasn't saying anything about it. So obviously the company needed to be called something organic. Shenandoah is a mouthful. <laughs> If you're out in California, you don't know where Shenandoah is. It doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. And while it's the heritage of the company, 
it's not something that says future the way that you want to say future because our company is about the new way of farming and we wanted to get it across now of course there's a lovely play on solely with s-o-l-e-l-y only organic because we don't do anything that's not organic but really the idea is a simple memorable name that would stand out in the marketplace that's not going to sound like every other you know place name that dominates the entire business yeah that's true yeah, very well done. It's very catchy, and it it, it says it. It's encapsulated in the name. <laughs> so, well done on that name change. Thank you. I was looking also as I was tying your experience and how it relates to what you're doing now. I saw that at Starbucks, you're responsible for a couple of of different areas, and I'm wondering as I read these out, which one of these you think would be most relevant to think about in Soli. So, it was uh, new product development, digital customer experience innovation data analytics, and consumer insights. Yeah, there's, well, it's interesting because there's a lot of my skill set from Starbucks that I'm not yet able to apply it solely. So the whole digital piece, the digital experience, we don't have a digital experience yet. And it, it'll be years before we have one. And at that point in time, my digital skill sets will probably be a little out of date. Uh, so I'm afraid I'm not putting that part of me to use. Now, the data analytics, on the other hand, is just using information well. And of course, we use it differently. Starbucks used data from a consumer point of view, especially. We're using data from a scientific point of view. We have AI that basically helps us understand all those inputs I talked about, the lighting and the irrigation and the airflow and so on to figure out what's optimal for the plants. So understanding that piece of it and the data analytics on the input side and the science side, great. That's useful. And I you know, certainly... Uh, apply myself in that area. But I would say that the most relevant things are new products as well as consumer insights. And of course, those are tied together because if you don't have great consumer insights, you will not develop the best new products. So one of the things you can expect from us across the next couple of years is a truly breakthrough lineup as we expand our as we expand further into leafy greens. I'm not going to divulge everything we're doing right now on this podcast, but I can tell you that we are focused on the best possible crops that only indoor agriculture and only our organic agriculture can enable. And uh, I'm excited about it because these are the kinds of things that I as a consumer would want to buy. And I think that part of winning at our game means winning at new products. Everybody who's doing hydroponics is more or less doing the same things plant-wise right now. I promise you, when we come out with stuff, we're going to take the world by storm. I think what's going to be exciting to watch is, is not only the innovation that's happening, but with someone that has your marketing experience also, like the marriage of those two. And I, I feel like we just got a taste of it with the rebrand. So it feels like uh, an industry that's ready or ripe, pardon the pun, <laughs> to, for a little bit of shakeup. So it's going to be fun to watch. Well, you know, the funny thing about, like, you look at all these mega categories that technology companies have come along and disrupted. I mean, you know, take the obvious one, taxi cabs, and then then comes along Uber that reinvents the taxi cab experience with technology. Produce has been one of those businesses that, you know, globally, I think it's a you know, $1.4 trillion category across all the channels and everything else. It's enormous. 
But the problem with developing brands and marketing in a business like that is you can't have a brand unless you have consistency. I mean, that was also true in the taxi cab business. And the way you get consistency is by having a standardized product. And the only way in the, you can get a standardized product in agriculture is to take the vagaries of nature out and grow stuff indoors. So what an opportunity if you can grow things indoors and have all that consistency and predictability combined with the ability to design relevance and differentiation into a product, that's the recipe for brand. And it's happened over and over again in so many different businesses is when you can come online and start to develop product that's consistent. Starbucks did that. Remember, there used to be coffee shops all over the place, and they all served coffee in the same cup back in New York City in the day. Thank you for serving you in a little blue cup with Greek lettering on it and so on. And you never knew what was inside the cup. It was all the same anyhow. <laughs> Starbucks comes along and says, no, this is different kind of coffee. It is relevant because it tastes better and so on to your uplifted taste. But what Starbucks did is they did it consistently. So the Starbucks in Shanghai and the Starbucks in New York and the Starbucks in Paris all gave you the same cup of coffee. That has never happened in the produce business. Mm, And it's about to happen right now because you will literally be growing plants with the same recipe, regardless of whether or not they're grown in California or Virginia or Minnesota. They are going to be grown the same way. And you know that when you see the Soli brand name on top of that box of lettuce, it's going to be exactly that great quality lettuce that you always have. Uh, Yeah, it's going to be exciting to watch. Yeah, I think for folks that are new to Soli, maybe looking at in terms of differentiation between other folks that are in that space, you know, are you more, and I know that you're you're not containers, so you're not like a freight farms, but people think about freight farms, think about plenty, they think about, you know, Bowery and trying to figure out where Soli fits in that hierarchy. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, we are like a lot of the other people who grow indoors, except for not, because we grow organically. And I think that's a big difference. And and that the number one thing that we wanted to do is to deliver all that quality that you associate with organic. So great quality product, by the way, fresh to market because it's grown nearby. And importantly, we're going to focus on the best possible crops, the crops that can happen because it's organic as well, too. So we're going to have real differentiation and real advantages. We're also focused on not being the most expensive lettuce in the store or the most expensive herb in the store. We want to be able to provide that organic at the mass price point. And I think that once people start to see organic at a mass price point, with all the quality that sits beneath it and all the ESG story as well too, all the environmental benefits and so on. We'll think, wow, this is a great brand. Yeah. That's going to be definitely interesting and exciting. What's a a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Well, one of the things that I think the entire industry could do a better job at, and certainly it was one of those things that I discovered only after being at the company is all the information that's out there on the environmental advantages of indoor farming almost become like it's what's the source? Where's the real truth? And I think there's real work to be done for the entire industry to demonstrate and prove the advantages. We know they're there. It's not a question of them not being there, but having that really good data on why this is better for the environment is something that I think the entire industry ought to get behind. And it was shocking that all the things you see 
are not always backed up with the best facts set out there. And one of the things I'm on a mission to do across the next year is to make sure that we have that fact set. And by the way, there are things that only Soli can do because the advantages of not having to use the inorganic fertilizer, which I read is using 3% of the world's electricity to make right now. That's that's greater than aviation. So the, the environmental impact of fertilizer is something that's enormous. So getting that story out there, also big differences, our way of growing versus hydroponics. We're not spending a lot of energy pumping water around to the same extent. So there are things that we have to do to tell our own story there, but the industry in general has a big job to do to tell the uh, environmental impact story much more compellingly than it's done to date. Assuming as we start to open things up and getting back to conferences that solely will be making its presence <laughs> known <laughs> as we get into that. Yeah, we've been a little shy. We have not been the, you know, we, we've always preferred to walk the walk before we talk the talk, but we're starting to run right now. And it's to, people are going to notice us one way or the other. So we're going to get out there. We are opening facilities, mega scale facilities this year. Okay. One in Northern Virginia, one in South Carolina. And it's not a secret anymore what we're doing. We are going to take our rightful place on the stage. <laughs> How do you think about expansion and what? And going back to data analysis, right, demographics, what's a little bit of that thought process as you think about where it makes sense to expand to? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the analytics we do basically have to do with serving population and serving customers, you know, our retailers, as well as serving uh, the end consumers. And we have plans right now to develop a national network of, of facilities. Now, we have basically a line of sight to funding half of that done already in the bag. And we're looking at figuring out how to fund the rest of it. But, you know, we have a little bit of time to do that. And by the time, you know, a couple of years pass, we will have a national footprint to serve all of our customers what they need in both herbs and leafy greens. And then we have an opportunity, which we're working on in R&D right now, to tackle and apply the same kind of R&D work that we're doing right now for leafy greens and for herbs to other crops as well, too. And that's just, you know, more opportunity down the road. So what you can expect from us is that we will have, have a nationwide network of mega facilities to grow with organic. Uh, you know, We can't just use somebody else's facility if they happen to go belly up and want to sell us something. We have to use soil-based facilities. And we are going to continue to build them and develop them. We are looking for partners in that process right now. But it's pretty exciting because it's something that we have a clear line of sight to, and it's not going to take all that long to get there. To that point, given the audience is super niche in this podcast, is there an ask that you have for folks in the industry, for your peers, for your colleagues, any potential partners? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if I'm speaking to investors, and I'm sure I am here to a certain extent, understand the differences between the different players and companies in the space and what different people bring to the table. You know, we are in a process right now to figure out what's next for us from an investment point of view, and we welcome the scrutiny and we welcome the ability for people to understand what it is we're doing and how we're different. I would also say that this is a rising tide now for everybody in the industry. And while we may be, you know, at the top of the floating to the top of the tide, if you will, others are going to benefit from it as well, too, because it's a it's an area that deserves the attention it's getting. And, you know, I think there are going to be some bumps in the road and not everybody's going to be successful right out of the gate. Don't get discouraged by that. Look to the long term here and uh, see how this is going to revolutionize one of the last big 
total addressable markets that has not yet been addressed. <laughs> Good point. Matt, I'm curious, because of the successes you've had in your career and leading up to this new position with Soli, uh, do you have any mentors or people that have inspired you along the way that come to mind? I have a long list and I like mentors. I like inspiration. And I usually find myself learning from everybody. And sometimes it's not even the mentors you learn from. And you can learn from people who don't do things well as well, too. And I'm not going to name any names there. That's true, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I, you try to be a lifelong student. And you, you absorb from those people who are trying to teach you. And you also absorb from those people who are not trying to teach you, but whom you can still learn from. And um, it's one of the great joys in my life is to be able to look at anything that's going on and not necessarily just in my industry or not necessarily just in business to say, how did so-and-so tackle that? And what about that person makes them a great leader? And I have been fortunate to have front row seats on so many different arenas over my lifetime and to be able to learn from some of the very best. But I've also seen some things that I've learned from that maybe weren't intended for me to learn from. And <laughs> all that is good. It's all good as long as you keep on moving forward. That's very well put. One last question. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Well, I have been one of those people who changes my mind on a lot of things, but I don't change my mind when the fact set doesn't tend to change. Okay. So I, I think that what, what ends up happening is as you learn new things and as you learn about, you know, things that you thought were true that are no longer true, you can revise your opinion on stuff. You can revise what you decide to do because the things are no longer the same. And there's a long list of little things like that that have happened since I've joined Soli. I mean, lots of things where, okay, the fact base is now different from the fact base that I thought it was earlier on. And you just learn to pivot along the way on everything that you have to do. Occasionally, I suppose it's possible that you could make a mistake that is based upon you know, making the wrong assessment or making the wrong logical decisions about something. And I, that will happen to me at some point. But mostly it's about new information that comes along and how do you pivot on that? And it could be everything from information on, you know, growing costs to information on, you know, what's going on in the facility. And you make a pivot at that point in time. And certainly we do along the way. You have to be flexible. Yeah, that's a, a good reminder for everyone who thinks there's only like that rigidness of not being able to change an opinion that you previously had because maybe you're embarrassed that people would see that you changed uh, your, your thought process. But I think to your point, with a different set of facts and new facts, I think you're able to make more well-informed decisions, um, which is better in the long run. Sure. <laughs> yeah well matt uh the hours flown by i want to thank you for being generous with your time and for sharing a little bit of your backstory as well because i feel like that's inspirational we have a lot of uh stories with uh founders and ceos and i think uh, anytime people can see what other folks uh journey has been i think they can they can relate and, and be inspired as well
Yeah, wishing you all the best with Solely Organic. It's to, as we've alluded to, it's going to be exciting to see some of the innovations that have yet to come. But I think with someone that has your experience, again, at, at Disney and Starbucks and how that gets incorporated to Soli, it'll be fun to watch. And if the, it makes a point uh, where some things, big things are happening, you have an open invitation to come back for round two and, and fill us in on, on, on what's been happening. I appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, we'll get folks connected to the website. So for should we just direct everyone to Soli Organic? Soli Organic. Yep. Okay. Thanks again for your time, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Harry. Thanks again to Cultivated for being a fantastic sponsor. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, make sure you reach out to them today. The best part about it is that their service is free and it's because they work on behalf of their partners. So head on over to cultivated.com. Just leave off the last E. That's C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. And thanks again to episode sponsor Freight Farms, who manufactures and sells the leading vertical hydroponic container farm, the Greenery S. Built inside a 40-foot shipping container, the Greenery S uses innovative climate control technology paired with an IoT app called Farmhand to enable anyone to grow fresh food anywhere in the world. Visit FreightFarms.com forward slash Vertical Farming Podcast to learn more. Another reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.